Once you remain standing, we're going to read our verse in Revelation today. Good morning, Facebook and live stream. So, Revelation chapter 4. Got a lot to cover this morning. One verse. (laughs) After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So, Lord, as you showed your servant John the things that must take place, Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to see what is taking place all around us and where that will eventually lead us. I pray, Lord, that you wake up your church, continue to wake us up from this long slumber and show us lord the things that are going on around us help us lord so that we can prepare those in our family our loved ones those who we have influence with lord prepare them for what's coming and hopefully lord prayerfully lead them to the cross so go before us here this morning in our study we ask it in your name lord jesus amen listen before you sit down we haven't done this in a while because of the coronavirus why don't you say hello to one another? I mean, if it was elbow bump or whatever, you just want to wave. You know. I don't want you to infect yourselves. So, Melanie, just in case it gets a little restless, we have a, in the back there is a nursery with a TV. So, good. All right. Why don't you guys be seated? Just a, um, an announcement on top of announcements, because it wouldn't be Calvary Chapel without that. There will be a picnic, a cookout next week at Nancy and Kurt's, as you heard. That will also be our agape feast. So, um, we will not have agape. We'll have communion here, but we won't have the agape feast here. We're going to have the picnic at their place instead. So please come out. Um, they just redid the whole backyard, so it's going to be nice. And there's there's the garage. Um, there's a lot of space. So you could be inside, out of the heat, or outside, whatever you prefer. It's going to be a good time. And also, there won't be a um, keys to the message today. We will do that live next week at the picnic. This is something we'll talk about because this one verse, we're going to get at least two weeks out of, maybe three. I don't know yet. We'll see where the Lord leads. But uh, can you imagine one verse having so much meat in it? So let's dig in. Today we're going to begin this long-awaited journey through the rapture of the church. You guys have really been waiting for this. You had to suffer through seven churches to get here. Now, from verses, or chapters rather, 4 to 19, or 6 to 19 specifically, speaks of the tribulation of the world, right? And I got to warn you, as we move into chapters 6 through 19, if you are not saved, if you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, those chapters are going to be terrifying to you. But if you are a blood-bought saint, you are not going to see what happens in those chapters happen. Because we're out of here. Because we are saved by the blood of Christ. These next couple weeks are arguably the most important studies that we're going to do in the book of Revelation. Because, let's face it, and I'm praying, we may not get through the entire book of Revelation. Now, I woke up this morning, I'm like, ah, I'm still here. And then I had to call a few people to make sure I wasn't the only one that was still here. But listen, the good news is, and as you look in the newspapers and watch TV and look on the Internet, there's not very much of that nowadays, is there? The good news is, if you know Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, you will not experience the tribulation that will come upon the rest of the world. And that should be exciting news for us as believers, right? Should be. But did you know that not all of our brothers and sisters are excited about that news? 
There is a growing trend among churches not to teach about the end times, not to teach about the rapture. Why? Well, if you think about it, it's kind of a simple answer, isn't it? People are starting families, they're starting new careers, they're buying homes, they're getting married. When you have all those plans for your life, do you really want to talk about the end of the world? Do you want to talk about all this coming to a crashing halt? So the end of the world and the rapture aren't very popular topics in church today, believe it or not. But is it just the people who don't want to hear about it? It seems that pastors of most churches today can't even agree upon whether there's a rapture at all or the timing of the rapture, if there is one. Christianity Today conducted a poll among pastors, and this is what they found when they asked them about the rapture in particular. About a third or 36% of senior pastors believe in the rapture. Did you hear that? 36% of senior pastors believe in the rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture, I should say. So that leaves 64%, see how quick I did that math? 64% of pastors who do not either believe in the pre-tribulation rapture or believe in the rapture at all or believe that there's another timing to this, that it happens either in the middle or the end of the tribulation. What's interesting about this poll is that Christianity Today broke it down by denominations. 64% of pastors who believe that the rapture isn't literal or disagree on the timing or they just aren't sure, and here's how they break down with mainline pastors. 36% are likely to say the rapture is not literal. It's not a literal rapture, and if it's not literal, I don't know what it is. Pastors who hold this view include about half of the Lutherans, 60%, Methodists, 48%, and Presbyterians and Reformed pastors, 49%. Baptists, only 6% hold that view, and Pentecostals, 1% hold this view. So, no surprise, evangelicals, well, actually this is a surprise, because this number should be 100%, but evangelicals overall, 43% of us, believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. So, I said all that to say that depending upon what denomination you have belonged to, or do belong to, you may or may not have ever heard of the rapture or may not have ever even been taught it in church. Seeing how many pastors don't even believe that there will be a rapture or have differing views of the timing, you can see why there is so much confusion about the rapture of the church. Talking about the end times just scares people, doesn't it? It's, it's a scary thing. Yet the rapture is not scary at all. It is our blessed hope, the Bible says. The end times is God bringing to an end a world as we know it. And what we're seeing today, maybe we don't want to know this world anymore. It's a new world, a new world where Jesus, not Satan, is the ruler of. And wouldn't we as followers of Jesus Christ want that? Wouldn't we be excited about that happening? Now there's a couple of reasons why I believe that Christians, and maybe most Christians, are not looking to a pre-tribulation rapture, or maybe not even a rapture at all. First, there are Christians out there who believe that we must go through some kind of persecution, or we have to go through the wrath and be persecuted first before the rapture. I don't ever want to belong to a church that teaches that. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. It is not the heart of God. It just isn't his heart that all should perish or that anyone suffer his wrath. That's not his heart. Just look at John 3.16, right? Or listen to the words of Peter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So it's God's heart that all, how many is all? All. The whole world comes to repentance, that none, none would perish. But here's the key word, repentance. Repentance is the key word. If you notice as we went through the seven letters to the seven churches, all but 
two of them, so five out of the seven, Jesus told to what? Repent or else. Pretty scary words. Repent or else. That word repentance means, obviously, and I'm talking to the choir here, to turn from your sin and turn back to God. There's a process involved there. And it tells us two things about those churches and about those who were not repentant. First, that they were living in sin, that they were practicing sin in their lives, and second, that they were away from God, and in some cases, far away from God. And doesn't that describe much of the world we live in today? And God wants all who turn, all who dwell on this earth, rather, to turn to Him, repent of their sin, and return to Him. Those who do will not be appointed to wrath. Because why? We've obtained salvation. Jesus, when we turn from our sin and turn to God, we are what? Saved. As non-believers, we are saved. Jesus traded places with us. We, before we were saved, had an appointment with wrath. But when we were saved by Jesus Christ, when we were saved by his blood, he took our place on the cross. We're no longer appointed to wrath because we are saved. We have attained salvation. Almighty God poured out his wrath for our sin upon Jesus on that cross. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for all believers so that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God, but rather receive the grace of God. Amen? And so the reason that's such an important discussion in a topic like the rapture is because there is a difference between persecution and wrath. Do you understand that? There is a difference between persecution and wrath. The tribulation is the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God. And from Revelation chapter 6 to 19, it is the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting, unrepentant world. Believers have submitted themselves to Christ. They've been saved, but saved from what? Did you ever think about that? What have you been saved from? The wrath of God. You've been saved from the wrath of God. Jesus suffered the wrath for us, therefore we will not go through the tribulation. We will not go through the wrath of God. Plain and simple. However, Jesus never said we would not be persecuted, did he? Now, I know that some of you think that the church is closed and that you may not be able to read your Bible or witness in the mall. That's persecution. You have no idea what persecution is. In fact, no one in this room has any idea what persecution is. Our brothers and sisters around the world could tell us a little bit about what persecution truly is. Jesus was persecuted. The apostles were persecuted. The saints throughout the ages have been persecuted. And our brothers and sisters around the world today are being persecuted. Jesus said what? He said, these things I spoke to you that you may have peace in me, but in this world you will have tribulation, but be of what? Good cheer. I've overcome the world. That word tribulation means affliction. It means distress. It means persecution. So to be very clear, very clear about this, we may, we may face the persecution of man before the rapture. I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to ruin your Sunday. I say that to prepare you so that you are prepared both mentally and spiritually for what may come. Listen, just look. Look at what's going on around us. Open your eyes. Do some research. Do some reading. Vet some of this stuff. Know that you know that you know. There are groups out there that hate us, and they are gaining popularity, and they're gaining ground, and they're gaining traction. They're gaining parts of states, for that matter. There are people out there that hate us. Not just, it's, not, it's no longer a racial thing. They're looking to do away with everything that's America. They're looking to do away with our values and our morals, and they're looking to do away with Christianity, because that has to happen. Do you understand that the, we are being set up, the world is being set up, the stage is being set for the Antichrist to take the reins? It's happening right before our very eyes. So we may see persecution in our lives, real persecution. 
And I just want you to be prepared, as I said, mentally and spiritually for that. But we will never suffer the wrath of God through the tribulation. Amen? You know the difference now? Because we have a promise from Jesus that tells us we won't go through the tribulation. Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 10. You guys should have that highlighted. You should have it framed and hanging on your wall. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is speaking to the believers in the church of Philadelphia. Anyone in this room a believer? He's speaking to you. He's speaking to all of us. Second, the second reason why some Christians aren't excited about the rapture is because they're too entangled with the world around them. Many Christians have become so entangled in the things of this world that they've become so attached to this place that, listen, they're simply not ready to leave just not ready to leave you don't understand god i've got some things to do i want to get through college i want to do this i want to get married i want to do all these things this world has become our home paul wrote you therefore must endure hardship as a soldier a good soldier of jesus christ no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier second timothy chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 you know, my son enlisted in the Marine Corps. He became a pro the property of the United States Marine Corps. And he went through basic training, Paris Island, South Carolina, where they stripped him of self. They stripped him of that independent nature that he had, the one that drove me nuts all the time. And they made him a part of the Marine Corps, where all the Marines fight as one unit. Now, some of the things they encouraged my son to give up we're good, like that self-willed temper of his and that independent spirit of his. That had to be broken. And some things were a struggle for him, like missing his family, holidays, special occasions, those kinds of things. But he was stripped of all of those things, good and bad, and he became a dedicated Marine because of it. He became part of, I believe, one of our country's most elite fighting force. So when the time comes for them to engage in battle, a Marine will fight and move on the orders of their officers without question. That which, that's what makes them such an effective fighting force. Listen, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we become his. We become his property. He paid a ransom for us. He paid for us by his blood. He freed us from the bondage of sin and death. And in the process, we became his blood-bought saints. One with him, and listen, one with each other. We are to be unentangled with the things of this world. Our self-will, our pride, our independent nature. We're to be free from that. Untangled even by our families, our careers, our homes, because we belong to Jesus now. And we are to go wherever and do whatever the Holy Spirit leads us to do. But there's many believers who become so entangled with the things of this world, it's hard for them to let go of the things of this world. Therefore, the end of the world, the end of this world as we know it, frightens a lot of people. It frightens a lot of believers. And listen, I would say that if you're not excited about Jesus coming back, then you may be too tangled up with the things of this world. That you've forgotten that you're no longer a citizen of this world. You are now a citizen of heaven. And I would encourage you to make the decision now, today, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ or are you going to serve the world? Because Jesus tells us we cannot serve two masters, doesn't he? And the third reason why there's not a lot of excitement for some Christians is the timing is off. Their timing's off. Some believe that the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. Anybody here believe that? I won't make you raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, hopefully at the end of the study you'll believe that the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. Some believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation. They're called, it's called pre-wrath. And some believe that it happens at the end of the tribulation. That's a tough one. There's probably better arguments for the mid-trib than there is for the post-trib.
but I'm going to give you a little teaser because we're not really going to dig into this until next week. But just a teaser. When a country declares war on another country or vice, you know, when, when there's a war declared, who are the first people that country pulls out of that country? Your ambassadors. We ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So when God pours his wrath out upon this unrepentant, Christ-rejecting world, he's going to take his ambassadors out. Okay? So there's a little teaser. We're going to look at all those positions next week, and, and Lord willing, I'm going to tell you which one of those is correct. So for the next two Sundays, at least, we're going to look at the rapture, and we're going to ask some questions. Who, what, why, where, when, and how? And those are, that's biblical study 101, right? You can always learn more by asking those questions. Who, what, where, why, when, and how? And that's, what we're going to, that's how we're going to attack this subject of the rapture. So we're going to read it one more time. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So the first question we're going to ask is why? Why do we believe that this is so that the end is so close? I mean, Christians have believed this for centuries. Walking around with sandwich boards on, the end is near, ringing the little bell, your redemption draws nigh. It's been for years, centuries really, people have been talking about this, the second coming, talking about the end of the world. But why do we believe we're the final generation? Well, I have to say that I believe personally that we are quickly approaching the time that we know in the Bible as the tribulation. And by the way, Christians are 100% in agreement that there will be a tribulation. So it's nice to know that we can all get together and believe in something, right? But really, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, a, a doctrine as important as the rapture, something that brings such comfort and hope to believers, you would think that we'd be in 100% agreement on the rapture as well. But sadly, we're not. And because, well, the reason we're not is because many have not been taught about the rapture or they've been taught incorrectly about the rapture. And if we're confused about it, if we're not sure of whether it happens or doesn't happen or when it happens, how are we ever going to tell the world around us about what we believe? See what the enemy's done? He's done what he's very good at doing. He's brought confusion, division, and lies into the camp. And listen, we wouldn't expect anything else from the father of lies and confusion, would we? I pray at the end of this study that you no longer are confused, but you are convinced about the who, what, where, why, when, and how of the rapture of the church. And because it's such an important doctrine, it's also important that we get the timing right. And so I said, I believe we are quickly approaching the time known as the tribulation. As Jesus describes it, it is the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. The Old Testament says it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who was Jacob? A Jew. He was Old Testament, but he was Jewish, right? And so I'll say it again. You'll hear it quite a few times through the book of Revelation. The tribulation is for the salvation of the Jewish nation. And we'll talk about that. Yes, there will be tribulation saints, but it is primarily for the salvation of the Jewish nation. Christians are not the only ones who believe that the world is headed for a catastrophe. There's non-believers who believe that we're close to something happening as well. Have you ever heard of the doomsday clock? I find this clock fascinating. It doesn't look like much of a clock, does it? It looks like half a domino, to be honest with you. I think that's where dominoes got their logo from. In 1945, by the un a group of scientists in the University of Chicago helped develop the first atomic weapons we know as the atomic bomb, right? It was called the Manhattan Project. They called themselves later on the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They created the Doomsday Clock two years after this Manhattan Project. Now, they are using imagery. The clock is used for imagery with the 12th, you know, the, the hand set at 12, that's Armageddon. And so the, the minutes before that is they go up in increments till you get to Armageddon, to the, 
to the um, midnight on the clock. And that grows more imminent as the closer we get to nuclear war or some kind of climate catastrophe. It, the closer that gets to midnight, the more imminent that threat is, is what I'm trying to say. And so this clock has become a universally recognized indicator of the world's vulnerability of a catastrophe like a nuclear war or a climate change. The former Irish president, Mary Robinson, said this about the clock. The doomsday clock is a globally recognized indicator of the vulnerability of our existence. It is a striking metaphor for the precarious state of the world. Now, to give you some sort of idea of how close they believe, non-believers believe we are to some kind of catastrophe in this world, I'm going to give you some settings of this clock over the last few years. In 1991, the clock was set at 17 minutes to midnight. In 2014, the clock was set at 5 minutes to midnight. In 2015, the clock was set at 2 minutes to midnight. Currently, that clock is set at 100 seconds to midnight. So when they believe that the threat is diminished, they will set the hand of that clock back. giving the world more time, I guess they think, right? But it's interesting you note that the clock's original setting was at, in 1947 was at seven minutes to midnight. So the clock has gone back and forth over 24 times since its inception. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists believe that we've gotten so close to some kind of catastrophe that they're no longer measuring it in minutes, they're measuring it in seconds. But listen... No matter what they have, the prophetic clock of God never stops. And it never goes backwards. It has been ticking away since the, Jesus came to this earth and will continue to tick away until Jesus returns. We're living in the end times. We are the final generation. Whether you believe that or not, we are rapidly moving toward the return of Jesus for his church and the second coming to judge this world and to rule and reign. So when did we become the final generation? Well, Jesus tells us when the final generation began. Listen to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, verses 32 through 35. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit of the fig tree. Jeremiah 24, 5, like these good figs, so I will acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. So the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel, both physically and spiritually. And the reason that's so important is because the Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem and the city was destroyed when, if you remember? 70 AD by the Roman general Titus, right? At that time, all sacrifices ceased. The people were scattered abroad. Israel was no longer a nation. Well, the problem is that when Jesus told this parable, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The temple was right behind them. The Jewish nation was still in existence, and the temple still stood. So he's saying to us that we are the, the, the ones who see the rebirth of Israel are the final generation. So he couldn't have been talking to the disciples. He had to be talking to a future generation, no? And we are that future generation. Never in the history of mankind has a nation that was so completely destroyed and a people so utterly scattered throughout the world became a nation again. Usually when they got to that point, it was done and over with. But God said that's exactly what would happen. Listen to God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? 
Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring forth the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause a delivery, shut up the womb? Says your God, Isaiah 66, verses 8 through 9. <clears throat> so Israel is the tender fig branch. They would be born in one day, is what the prophet Isaiah is telling us. That day was May 14, 1948, and her children are the leaves of the fig tree. They would begin to return to the land. You know, I just read an article recently that because of what's going on around the world, more and more and more Jewish people are returning to the nation of Israel. And when we were there, they are building apartment complexes everywhere. Everywhere. They are preparing for the return of the Jewish people to that nation. And we know that the Jews must return to that nation in the end times. So it's already beginning to happen. The generation that witnessed the rebirth of Israel would be the final generation. That event occurred 72 years ago in May. As a matter of fact, May 14th, just passed, 2020, was the 72nd birthday of the nation of Israel. Happy birthday, Israel. But to give you some perspective of what a generation is, our beloved Dan and Keith are both 72 years old. I know, right? Right? So the generation, that generation, will not pass from this earth until... The return of Jesus Christ is what that parable tells us. So if you see Dan go, we're going right behind him. That's what I tell Dan all the time. Knowing that, how long do you really think we have before Jesus comes back for his church? It could be sooner than any of us even imagine. And when we look at the events happening around the world, it seems that we're moving closer and closer and closer to his return, doesn't it? We see the signs that Jesus gave us in Matthew 24 being fulfilled right before our very eyes. And so we're seeing this shadow of things that will occur in the tribulation as well. And if you see the shadow of something, isn't the real thing close behind? For only, listen, there's only one person, only one person that can delay this from moving forward, and that's God the Father as he is the only one who knows the day or the hour. And unless he does something like another revival, I believe we're on a collision course with the return of Jesus. And that's not a bad thing. It's not as scary as you might think. Wouldn't you rather just spend the rest of eternity in heaven with him? Float around on clouds, eat bagels with Philadelphia cream cheese on them all day long? Play the harp? I'd like to learn how to play the harp. All the signs and the prophecies are converging. See, that's the thing that you, we don't think about sometimes. You look at one thing over here and one thing over here, one event here, one event there, and you don't put it all together. They're converging together. That's what has pastors all excited. I just saw another brother today post that they're teaching Revelation. They're beginning Revelation. I can't tell you how many pastors I know that are in the book of Revelation. You know, and I, I thank God because this is something we had planned to do before all this craziness started. We had already planned to be in this book, and, and it is the perfect time to be in this book. And I'm praying that we don't ever finish this book. We, we finish it in heaven. We'll, listen, we'll sit down with John, and he can tell us the rest of the book. But unless God says, hey, time out, world, time out, it's not time yet, we are closer now than we ever were before. Jesus could be coming for his church any time, any day, any moment, maybe even this morning. Joe, you got that queued up? I'm going to show you guys a quick video. To wake you up, number one, um, turn the volume up on that, please. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore... For you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. I want you to know, church, that Jesus Christ could come this month. Or he might come next week. Or he could even come...
we need to determine what it means to be raptured. It means that many of that generation that we talked about who are alive and well on the earth today will not leave this earth until they see, one, the rapture of the church, two, World War III, as Russia, Iran, and Turkey, and others come against Israel. Note, that may happen before, during, or after the tribulation. We're hedging all our bets. Three, the rise of one world leader known as the Antichrist, and that will usher in one world religion, one world economy, a one world government. Four, the construction of a temple in Israel and a peace agreement already in place but made, but put together and put in place and implemented by the Antichrist. Could very well be the Dale of the Century that was just adopted. Five, the appearance of two witnesses in Israel that stopped the rain for two and a half years. Six, the death of those two witnesses as seen around the world on the nightly news. Seven, the defilement of the temple by the Antichrist, which will also be seen around the world as it happens. Eight, the beginning of the Great Tribulation, a time so terrible that Jesus said if the days were not shortened, no flesh would survive. Note, the first, people think the first two and a half years of the tribulation is a walk in the park. It's not. Those two witnesses dry up the rain for two and a half years. Do you know what that causes? Famine and pestilence. And if you read chapter 6 of Revelation, that's exactly what Jesus talks about. Those seals are being opened. Nine, Armageddon, as the nations of the world are led against Israel, and Jesus comes and defeats them in the valley of Jezreel. And then 10, the return of Jesus. All of these events, except of course for number 10, are not in specific order. Some of them may occur simultaneously, but they are all events that this generation will see before they leave this earth. And so the reason that the rapture is so important to us as believers is because we are going to be taken out of here, we believe, before any of this happens. We will be spared from the wrath of God, which is going to be poured out upon the entire world. Paul wrote to Titus that we are looking for our blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what he says. The rapture is our blessed hope. It's our hope. And notice what Paul says, we're looking for the appearing of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. To believe that the rapture happens any other time other than pre-tribulation means we're looking for the appearing of who? The Antichrist. Not Jesus the Christ. We are looking for the appearing of the Antichrist. I personally am not looking for him. I know people have been looking for Elvis for years. I am not looking for the Antichrist, and neither should you be. We should be looking up for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Because we're looking for Jesus to come and take his bride. And listen, that's a very important clue to all of this, and I'm going to make you wait till next week to find out what I'm talking about. Listen, you get two messages for the price of one, so you can't complain. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Caught up. If you haven't got that underlined or marked in your Bible, mark that, because that is the key to why we believe there is a rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Second key to this. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. Do those words comfort you? Knowing that you will not see the destruction that's coming upon the Lord, the world. It breaks my heart that this is coming. It breaks his heart that this is coming. But nothing is going to stop it from coming. So Paul tells us we're to comfort one another with the thought or the talk of the rapture. So the rapture is to give us hope. It's to give us comfort in this increasingly hostile world because it encourages us to hold fast, to hold on to what we have because 
Jesus is coming. He's coming for us, his bride. So the rapture is for our hope and comfort. It's not something that we should be afraid of. Amen? So third, what is the rapture? Do you know that the rapture, the word rapture, is not mentioned in your Bible? You can look all day long. You can even search through the book of Hezekiah, and you will not find the word rapture even once. Anybody who believes there's a book of Hezekiah, please message me or see me after service, and I'll show you where it is. Even though the word rapture is not mentioned in the Bible, does it mean that the concept of a rapture is not mentioned in the Bible? Because it is. Paul writes, then we are alive and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord always. That phrase caught up in the Greek is harpazo. Harpazo means to take by force or to snatch up. Just snatch us right out of here. That Greek word herpazo is translated in the Latin Vulgate, which is the oldest translation of the Bible in existence as raphemer. We get our word rapture from that word raphemer. That's where the word comes from. But because the rapture, the word rapture is not mentioned in scripture, there are many who believe that the rapture is not valid, that it doesn't happen, it is, that it's a hoax. Listen, the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, is it? Trinity is a man-made word. Do you believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? So the concept of the Trinity is clearly taught in the Bible. The second coming, that word, that phrase, second coming, is not mentioned in the Bible. Do we believe that Jesus is coming again? Absolutely. So the concept of the second coming is clearly taught in the Bible. And so is the concept of the rapture. And so we're going to look at, at chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians a little, cl- a little closer. At the time Paul wrote this letter, there was a nasty rumor going around in Thessalonica that the rapture had occurred and that they, the Thessalonians missed the rapture. And so Paul writes to them to comfort them that it has not happened yet. And when it did happen, this is how it's going to happen. But this means that they already knew in the first century that there was going to be a rapture of the church. They already knew this. They were already looking forward to it. So the argument against the rapture is based on the fact that a man in the 19th century by the name of John Nelson Darby taught that there was a rapture. That's where this first teaching of the rapture occurred. Therefore, in their minds, they say the rapture is a man-made concept. Is it a man-made concept? Or is it mentioned in the Bible making it a concept of God, not man-made? Now rest assured, it is mentioned in the Bible. Sometimes all you need to do is do a little digging. Just do a little searching, string together a few verses, and you can clearly see what we're talking about. So as I said before, the key to the rapture is found in the word or the phrase caught up. So we have to ask ourselves this question, does that mean what we think it means? Which means to be snatched away. And are there other examples in the Bible of those being snatched away? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. Because there is. In Genesis, we read about a man of God named, anybody know his name? Enoch. Enoch. Enoch lived in a world filled with evil. Not my description. That's how God described the world prior to the flood, right? And so Enoch avoided the evil in the world, and he walked with God, the Bible tells us. And this is what happened. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Man, at the end of 365 years, I'm ready to get out of here. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So the Hebrew word for took is laka, and it means to take away or to take up. He walked with God one moment, and the next moment he's in heaven with God. How do we know that? We know because his friends and family put his picture on all the telephone poles in town, and they never found him. He was gone. They never found him. He was no more. 
He was in heaven. God took him off the face of the earth to spare him from the flood that was to come. And of course, we know the flood wiped out the entire world except for Noah and his family. And we're also going to look at this a little closer next week, but we can say that Enoch is a picture of the rapture of the church, where the church is raptured out of or saved from the tribulation. And Noah and his family is a picture of the Jewish nation as they're saved through the tribulation. Another teaser. So you're going to have to come back next week. The next example we have in the Bible is Elijah. Elijah was a mighty prophet of God, and one day as he walked along quietly with his protege, Elisha, God took him home in a very dramatic fashion. It happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. That was some Uber ride, man, I'll tell you that. The word for went up is Allah, not Allah, but Allah, and it means to go up or to ascend. So Elijah was raptured or taken up to heaven. And if you remember, there was a time when he and Moses appeared before Jesus and the disciples, or three of the disciples, anyone, the Mount of Transfiguration. So in both cases, these two men were walking along, minding their own business. One moment they're on the earth, the next moment they're in heaven with Jesus. And that describes the rapture of the church. So that's a picture for us. Those are two Old Testament examples of saints being taken up to heaven and not experiencing death. But what about that Greek phrase, herpazo? Is that used anywhere else in Scripture? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question as well. In chapter 12 of Revelation, we read that the Antichrist, who is Satan incarnate, goes after Israel, which is represented by a woman, and we'll get, when we get there, we'll talk about that. And here's what it says. <clears throat> she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up, her pazo, to God and his throne, Revelation 12.5. The child of Israel is who? Jesus. And we know from Acts chapter 1 that Jesus is caught up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of, the, of God, waiting for that day when God says, okay, son, go get your bride. Paul describes that he was caught up in heaven. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up, herpazo, to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up, there's that word again, into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2-4. through four. That word herpazo, again, means to be snatched up. It is used elsewhere in the Bible. That's not the only place. So we can see from other examples that that's exactly what it means. But it's not just the word herpazo that we're interested in. We're also interested in the concept of being taken up out of here, alive off the earth. And there are other examples of that as well. We have Paul, we have Elijah, we have Enoch. But there's more. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received them out of their sight, Acts 1, 9. So Jesus was taken up from the earth, alive, to heaven as the disciples looked on. But he was not the only one. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. John was taken from the island of Patmos and transported to heaven, alive. So... As you can plainly see, there are examples, many examples, of saints being taken from the earth alive into heaven to be with the Lord. But there's also examples of heaven coming down to earth and back again. God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the evening, didn't he? God dwelt on, in the Holy of Holies. God met Moses on the mount on Sinai, right? God met Moses at the tent of meeting. Jacob saw angels ascending and descending up and down a ladder. While praying, Daniel was visited by the angel Gabriel. 
We're told that we're to always be mindful as we go through this world because we never know when we may be entertaining an angel. Mary was visited by an angel, wasn't she? And told that she would bear a son. Zachariah, for that matter, was visited by an angel and told that he would bear a son and what his name should be. Jesus came down from his throne in heaven over 2,000 years ago to sleep in a manger. He walked this earth for over 30 years and then he went back up to heaven where he came from. So these are examples of heaven coming down to earth and going back again. And the point is that there truly is a door open in heaven for heaven to come down to earth and eventually one day for the believers to go from earth to heaven where we will, listen, we're not, well, I shouldn't say we're not coming back. We will make one more appearance. But we're going up in heaven with him. And so it's not as difficult to imagine as you may think, is it? We could be walking on this earth or sleeping, sound asleep, bang, gone, gone in an instant. Another promise that we have of the rapture comes from Jesus as well. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Did you catch that? There's a picture of the rapture there. Jesus is going to come and receive us. Who? Who's he talking to? Believers. To himself. That is one of the most hope-filled passages in Scripture. Jesus came to this earth to die for the sins of mankind. And he returned to heaven after his crucifixion to prepare a place for us. For you and I. We all get a mansion. And so that he promised that where we are at, where he is at rather, there we will also be. That's a promise that he's coming back for his bride, the church. And next week we're going to talk about a wedding and how that answers the question of why. Why a rapture? And so he's coming again. And he's not referring to his second coming here. He's not referring to his second coming where he comes to judge a Christ-rejecting world and to rule and reign. He, this, this is something completely different. He says, I will receive you to myself. Jesus is going to come down from heaven, but only so far. And that we are going to meet him in the air as he receives us to him. That is speaking of the rapture. We are going to be raptured to him. We're going to meet him in the air and be with him forever. So that where he is, we will be also. Amen? Listen. Jesus is coming back for us. And that should excite each and every one of us. Now, I'm not telling you not to pay your mortgage this month. <laughs> Another question. What is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Well, I'm glad you asked me. There is a difference because there are two separate events. When Jesus was taken up the first time in a cloud to heaven out of the sight of his disciples from Mount of Olives, right? This is what the angels said. They looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in white apparel. Again, here's Jesus going up and two angels appearing before the disciples, heaven coming down to earth and then going back up again. Stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up. So as they saw Jesus go up, Jesus is going to return. His return was predicted at his ascension. We call that the second coming of Christ. Because the first coming was when he came and he was crucified and he went up. The next time he comes and steps foot on the Mount of Olives is the second coming. The second coming, every eye will see him. Every eye. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. So when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back in secret. Everyone will see him. And he's not coming back alone. He's coming back with his saints, as we're going to read here in a minute. How does the saints, who's the saints? We are. 
how did the saints get to heaven to come back with Jesus? Do we all just have our tickets punched at once? We're raptured out of here. We're raptured out of here to return with him. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints, with all his saints. When Jesus comes back the next time, it will be, there will be an earthquake on the Mount of Olives. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives because he will return to the same place he left, right? Which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valley, to the mountain valley shall reach Azil. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, my God will come and all the saints with you. Zechariah 14, 4 and 5. So his second coming will be seen by the whole world. And the next time he comes, that second coming, he will come with his saints who have been raptured to him prior to that. Now, does anyone know the day or the hour the rapture will happen? But you can know pretty close the day and hour the second coming will occur. Because we know from Scripture, and anyone who's left here who knows anything about the Bible at all will know that once the Antichrist enters the temple and desecrates it, it's two and a half years to the day, to the moment, when Jesus will return. So it's possible to calculate his second return. It is not possible to calculate the rapture. And so second, what's different in the rapture is that, as I just said, we can't calculate it. No one knows the day or the hour. The rapture is a much more intimate affair. Jesus comes only for his saints. The second coming, Jesus comes with his saints. The rapture, Jesus comes for his saints. And so the rapture happens before the wrath of God is poured out. The second coming happens after the wrath of God is poured out. Only believers will meet Jesus in the air. What the world's going to see with the aftermath of that, when tens of thousands of believers are taken out of here, when that light is put out, and there's children missing all over the planet, I love to understand how they're going to explain that. The rapture of the church is so much different than the second coming. And it seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. You, we're all crazy. We all think that Jesus is going to just zap us all up into the air. But that's exactly what's going to happen. And when it does happen, the world is going to have a heck of a time trying to explain that. I've heard all kinds of theories which aren't even worth going into. But somehow, someway, the world's going to have to explain how tens of thousands of believers are gone. And we're going to talk next week about what happens when that light goes out. Listen. I've always said this, if you struggle with the first line of the Bible, you are going to have trouble with every single thing that comes after that. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The most powerful words in the Bible are, but God. But God took Enoch and Elijah to heaven because they were his, because they walked with him. They went up to heaven without ever tasting death, but God. But God gave Paul a glimpse of heaven. He pulled back the curtain and let him see what heaven was like. But God. Jesus and John ascended into heaven alive. Jesus to sit at the right hand of God the Father and John to witness what was the things that were to come. But God, only God could do this. Only God could take us up alive to heaven. Only God. And so why wouldn't we believe in this? Because we believe in God, but God. And so Lord willing, next week we're going to look at, at the following questions about the rapture. What's the timing of the rapture? What's the correct timing of the rapture? What's going to happen, as I said, when the light goes out? When will the rapture happen? 
And no, I do not know the day or the hour. When it does happen, how is that going to affect the rest of the world? And then who is going to be raptured? And then finally, and most importantly, why? You know, we always ask when. That's the, most, that's the biggest question. When's it going to happen? But we very rarely ask why. Why would Jesus take us out of here? Why wouldn't he allow us to go through the wrath or any kind of persecution? So hopefully all of you can be back next week as we, well, maybe finish up the rapture. We'll see how far we get. So Lord willing, I hope we'll see you next week or I'll see you in the air, one of the two. But before we close this morning, maybe there's some here this morning or some listening on Facebook Live or on the website who don't know if the rapture happened today if you would be caught up in the air to meet Jesus Christ. And so if you want to be assured of that happening, it is a simple, as simple as A, B, C. And the first thing you need to do is admit that you're a sinner. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, that there are none righteous. If you think that your good deeds, that your good works, that your good behavior is enough to get you into heaven, you are wrong. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can enter heaven. The Bible tells us in Psalm 51 that we're all sinners. As a matter of fact, we're born into it. So the first thing to do is to admit that you are a sinner. And then B, the B of the ABCs of salvation is believe. Believe with your heart that Jesus died for your sins, that God raised him from the dead, and that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father today making intercession for us, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Romans chapter 10, verses 10 through 11 tells us, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So once you admit you're a sinner, and you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, and you repent of that sin and turn to Jesus, then the next step is C, call upon the name of the Lord, and the Bible tells us that we will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as ABC. You will be saved. It's all a matter of whether you believe in your heart or not. It's not something you want to struggle with in your head. It's not something that you just think about. It's here. And as I've always said, the difference between heaven and an eternity separated from Jesus Christ is 18 inches. It's whether you know him here in your head or you have him in your heart. And so there's no magic words here. There's no magic prayer. I know that we have gotten into a culture of doing a sinner's prayer and an altar call and everybody comes up and says this prayer. But listen, unless you believe it in your heart, unless you believe that Jesus died for you, unless you believe that you want to submit to him and for him to be your Lord and Savior. And listen, even Jesus tells us to count the cost, doesn't he? To ask Jesus to be Lord of our lives, there's something to that. You know, there's an old saying that says, if Jesus is not Lord of all of your life, he's not Lord of your life at all. And so there's a lot that goes into that. If you want, truly want Jesus to be the Lord of your life and submit to him, and you believe that with all your heart and you desire that with all your heart, then I can put it into a simple prayer for you. And as I said a million times, the, there's nothing magical about these words. But if you believe in your heart and you say these words with me and you call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow their head. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. I am admitting to you that I am a sinner. And Lord, I want to submit to you as my Lord and Savior, to walk with you all the days of my life. Lord, I place my faith right now in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask you to forgive me of my sin as I repent from it and turn to you. Help me, Lord, to live for you and to walk with you. Thank you for accepting me 
into your family. And Lord, I look forward to your coming. I look forward to being caught up in the air with you and to be with you forever. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So while everybody's head is still bowed, just give me one more second. Indulge me one more second. If anyone here this morning prayed that prayer, I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand while everybody's head is bowed. Amen. I see you. Put your hand down. Amen. I see you. Put your hand down. And of course, those who are watching us live, those who are watching on the website, if you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it in your heart and you've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you are saved. And listen, I may not ever see you. We may not ever see you, but we'll see you in the air because you will be part of those who are caught up. Maranatha. Amen. Please stand. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope and the comfort that is the rapture. And I pray, Lord, as we leave here today, that we are more excited and more on fire for you than ever before. Go before us now, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.